You're listening to the Violence Design Lab Podcast, Episode 12. Welcome to the Violence Design Lab Podcast, putting the science in theatrical violence. Now here's your host, David Bearford. Greetings, welcome back to the podcast. I'm David, and I'm really glad you've joined me. It's been so amazing to see the listener base grow week by week, and I hope you're enjoying the episodes. If you are, take a moment and give the lab a shout-out or a share on your favorite social media, or go to iTunes or your favorite podcast site and leave me some stars or a review, which it really helps others find the podcast. And for the ultimate show of support, go to patreon.com forward slash violence design lab and sign up for a level of monthly support, just like Brendan H., Melissa V., and the Glen Lachlan Estate College of Arms did. Thank you so much, folks. Your support means I can keep this project rolling week after week. And if you're a listener who wants to add your support on Patreon, well, you'll get access to lots of different rewards and a huge thank you from me on the episode after you sign up. Really means a lot. Now, I've often talked about the technical side of combining historical techniques with theatrical violence, but I haven't really addressed the artistic side of the combination. And each side, each perspective, has some deeply held opinions on how historical stage combat would look on stage. Artistic issues are, by nature, much less cut and dried than questions about how to translate technique, and there aren't a lot of simple answers. I certainly have my own opinions that I share, but I understand that your mileage may be different, and I'd really like to know your thoughts, so so do let me know. But keep in mind, I'm not talking about what you might have seen done badly on stage or in movies before, or the logistical or technical reasons that you think it can't be done. Why not? Because I know it can be done, and done right, and I'm not the only one doing it. In fact, I've started a page on the violencedesignlab.com website called Hold the Beer, which showcases some of the artists I've met who are already designing historical stage combat. And they... What? Why is it called Hold the Beer? Because those who say we can't combine historical techniques in stage combat, those who say it's impossible, should hold the beer of those folks who are already doing it. But I digress. I was discussing the artistic side of things, right? Well, there seems to be two major camps in the debate. Those who look at most modern stage combat and are dissatisfied with the level of realism or historical accuracy, which, by the way, are actually separate discussions, and those who are either satisfied with the way stage fights are currently being presented, or they don't see enough benefit in incorporating historical fighting styles to go to the trouble of innovating a raft of new stage combat techniques and to likely break the current logistical system of training actors and choreographers. Wow, I I didn't exactly give those groups pithy little soundbite names that flow off the tongue, did I? Oh, that's right, I, I took theater classes instead of marketing. So let's call them the realism camp and the theater camp. Now, broadly speaking, HEMA people populate the realism camp. I mean, you know the battle cries, stage fighting is bollocks, doesn't look like real sword fighting at all, right? And the theatrical camp is often represented by the mainstream stage combat community, and their basic position is theater or drama is always different from reality. Why do we need to change what has worked for decades? We're just telling stories. Now, to tackle this debate, I'm going to start with the theater camp. And that's where my training began anyway, so let's start there. The first charge commonly leveled against theater artists is that their style of fighting doesn't look real, that it doesn't look accurate. 
Famous film director Daryl F. Zanuck, the guy responsible for historical classics like The Longest Day, he once said, There is nothing duller on screen than being accurate without being dramatic. Dramatic. What does that even mean? I mean, first we have to define our terms. Dramatic means striking or sudden or exciting. It means related to drama. The word drama, actually, is from the Greek word for action, literally derived from the term I do. Of course, we use drama to describe telling stories through performance. Yeah, it comes back to storytelling again. Well, we don't go to the theater for boring stories, or at least I don't. I don't go to see the same experience I get in daily life. Imagine going to a theater and buying a ticket so you could sit down and watch someone sit at a desk for two hours or so typing no less than 14 emails, getting coffee twice, and placing two calls to track a lost package. Huh. Edge-of-your-seat entertainment, right? Oh, oh, you wanted a more exciting profession, like a secret service agent? Great! We can watch her waiting outside the Oval Office while a high-level meeting takes place inside. Or watch him standing in the rain for hours, staring down an alley at the service entrance of a hotel that the president will be using tomorrow. Yeah, they do those kind of things much more often than they get shot at. Even soldiers in a combat zone have long periods of waiting, of of mind-numbing boredom. You see, most of our lives are pretty mundane day-to-day routines punctuated with brief moments of crisis or excitement. But those crisis moments, they're where the drama lives. Those super high moments and the critically low ones... Those are the times that we tell stories about. I mean, you tell the story of the time you lost control driving on ice and put your car into the ditch. You don't regale listeners with the details of your everyday commute when traffic is light and the weather is clear, right? I mean, that commute, with its lane change decisions, merges into traffic, off-ramps and the rest, it's real. It's accurate. But it's not dramatic. Everything that's real doesn't make the cut for our stories. So right away, we're already talking selective reality. And that the boring, the ordinary, that gets left out, and the extraordinary gets made into drama. But it's not just extraordinary situations and events we want to hear about. Imagine a a movie where a thug is beating up a woman outside of a coffee shop in full view of our main character, a, a young barista. Now, the average person might try to ignore the scene or or place an anonymous call to the police or, for the little more foolhardy, try to record the event on their phone's video camera. But, again, accurate to real life, but not very dramatic from our perspective. We want characters who get involved. So, the main character of our movie intervenes, knowing no more about fighting than your average Starbucks barista, meaning precious little, and he pushes the thug away from the woman, the gangster, pulls out a knife and stabs him in the side. The barista drops to the pavement, out of action until the paramedics arrive. And then later, after uh, emergency kidney removal surgery and months of physical therapy, he's able to stand long enough to go back to his job at the coffee shop. Meanwhile, the woman, who, as it happens, was a drug mule for the thug, continues working for him because her economic situation and addiction issues have not improved. But who wants to see that movie? I mean, not many of us. Because although that story certainly had an extraordinary event, I populated it with, well, honestly, completely ordinary characters. And as an ordinary character myself, I can confirm that that combination is not a highly successful one. 
See, we want to see our plucky hero win against the odds, or at least see uh, the, the woman help him beat up the thug, nurse him back to help, and the two of them go off and foil a big Colombian cartel or something. Now, is it unrealistic that a well-meaning barista could fight off a seasoned street baller, brawler? Well, sure, but it is entertaining. It's, it's dramatic to watch. So what does all this have to do with sword fighting on stage? Well, it means, first of all, don't expect a stage fight to look exactly like a tournament bout at long point. I mean, we've already established that cutting and pasting reality, actual reality, onto stage isn't dramatically interesting. So no, stage fighting won't look like a heme bout. Now notice I said look like a heme bout, not look like a real sword fight. Because, ironically, for as much as HEMA practitioners are doing real martial arts, and they complain about movie and stage sword fights not looking real enough, I would posit that 99-point-whatever percent of HEMA people haven't seen a real sword fight either. That is, while there may be places in the world and occasional situations where two people go at each other with yard-long sharpened blades with the intent to injure and kill, this is no longer a regular occurrence, at least here in North America, and... Honestly, I am very okay with that. So, if you haven't seen swords used for their true purpose, that is, engage in the activity of piercing or slashing the human body into lifelessness, it's hard to say that you've seen a real sword fight. Because if you take away the fear, the adrenaline, the blood, and the confusion of a real combat, what's left is a rarefied game of tag with sticks. Now, please know, I am not saying this to belittle HEMA or fencing or martial arts in general. I've never seen a real sword fight either. But I want to make sure that we understand that we are largely virgins talking about sex here. We may know what a real sword play looks like, but not a real sword fight. Now, if you have seen or been involved in a real-life sword fight, A, I'm... I'm sorry for you, and B, I hope you're choreographing, because that's experience that could be very useful in this discussion. But no, you are a rarity in the modern world. I mean, HEMA is as close to real sword fighting as is possible these days, I guess. But except in maybe the final rounds of a national or international tournament, there's not much at stake. I mean, there's a modicum of physical risk, people injure fingers, pull muscles, but everybody feels generally bad about that. And even the consequences after a hard-fought bout are pretty light, usually on the level of, huh, you took me five hits to three. Great job. Hey, show me that one technique again. Right? But drama, drama is about conflict. It's about consequences and risk, about what people stand to lose if things don't go their way. In other words, it's about stakes. Hema bouts then have fairly benign consequences, i.e. low stakes, so they rate pretty low on the drama scale. And again, we don't go to the theater to see low drama. So therefore, theater people have good reason to, quote, unquote, augment reality and make their fights more dramatic than real life normally is and their characters more extraordinary compared to your average real-world fighter. So I'm asking the HEMA people out there to start approaching theater by managing their expectations as to the realness of the fights you're going to see on stage. Now, I can just hear my theater peeps out there saying, Ha! See? We're doing it right! But no, no, I'm not letting you off the hook so easily either. Because even if theater doesn't try to portray reality, it does deal in the currency of truthfulness. Now, we sometimes call this principle believability or being realistic, and that means that 
even if your characters are superheroes or hobbits or anthropomorphic rabbits, we still expect them to follow the basic principles of human emotion, motivation, and social interaction. I mean, if the way they're speaking seems artificial, or the apparent reasons for their behavior seem forced or a little too convenient for the story, we're quick to label it fake. There are shelves in academic libraries full of books and dissertations about what standards we use to judge whether something is truthful or not, but I distill it down to three things. Our experience, our expertise, and our expectations. Our experience living and socializing with other humans gives us a pretty good nose for sniffing out falsehood. Of course, the irony is, because of the whole theater environment, we know everything is ultimately not true and it's being staged for our benefit, but we believe anyway, and well, that concept, that's a whole episode in and of itself. But the experience factor is the first place where audience members who do HEMA begin to have a problem. Because their experience has shown them that real sword fighting, or at least when two people in a competitive environment are actively trying to hit each other with swords and not get hit in return, that looks vastly different than what they're seeing on stage. And I'm not talking right now about historical styles, I'll, I'll get to that in a minute, but the very nature of a competitive fight is not reflected in what I'll call current mainstream stage combat choreography. In, in essence, they're fake sensors are going off like mad, and that becomes an active distraction for their continued enjoyment of the play. I mean, not an insurmountable obstacle, but certainly an annoyance. Now, it's easy for choreographers and designers who don't share the competitive fighting experience of HEMA enthusiasts to brush this under the rug and say, well, it's such a small slice of the audience, or, well, stage fighting is different than real fighting, but I think that attitude flies in the face of what the actors are trying to do. As I mentioned before, actors and directors are in the business of truthfulness, and these professionals work diligently to recreate the experiences of the characters they inhabit. An actor might be called to play someone with a developmental disability, also within the experience of only a small segment of the potential audience, but the actor will carefully research what he or she doesn't know about the condition in order to portray the character's experiences as truthfully as possible. I mean, an actor would be irresponsible indeed just to play the Hollywood stereotype of the character's experience and say, well, stage autism is different than real autism, or or something like that. See, theater is a collaborative art form, and if one portion of the team goes to great lengths to produce performances that resonate truthfully with real experience, we as violence designers should hold up our end of the bargain in our area of expertise. Expertise. That brings me to the second factor that affects a performance's believability to an audience. There are many things that your audience will know without ever having experienced directly. For example, even people who have never been in the military or fought in a war would likely think it very odd if all your World War II soldiers on stage were armed with M16 assault rifles. Now, the U.S. Army adopted the M16 for general use in 1964, and it's only less than 20 years after the end of the Second World War. But most audience members would be confused which era your production was trying to depict if that kind of anachronism showed up. Now, one of the main roles of the, the specialist called the dramaturg is doing historical and contextual research about the play, and they often provide meticulous and copious information to the director and the production team so that the sets and the costumes, props, even the social customs shown on stage can be as historically and culturally accurate as possible. 
There's a fight choreographer and theater scholar, Marin Langsner, who often talks about the violence designer as a uh, fighter, as he calls it. And, and Marin underscores our responsibility to do the same research, careful research, in our area as a dramaturg does for the full production. I can't tell you how many times I've seen productions of Romeo and Juliet that teach actors, you know, period dancers for the party scene of the Capulets. And then for the fights, they swing around car antennas, I mean, epee blades, in some kind of uh, Hollywood swash slash Victorian fencing mashup. I mean, if any show called for some Italian rapier, that's the one, right? I'd even accept some Elizabethan English styles. I mean, love me some George Silver Backsword, or give me sword and buckler something. But when I see those kinds of disconnects between the historical reality and what I'm seeing on stage, my expertise makes it harder for me to enjoy the show. See, the fights are the violence designer's area of expertise. Your production team, they're not going to know Fabris from Fabio, but you're supposed to. And if you don't, I mean, that is, if Hollywood Swash is the only style in your toolbox, well, don't get all bent if a HEMA practitioner with more expertise than you calls you on it for a production that is otherwise historically accurate. Because it's getting less and less easy to get away with sloppy research. At least I hope it is. I'm certainly trying to make it so. Now, the last factor in apparent truthfulness is expectations. I mean, call it confirmation bias, call it willful ignorance, call it whatever you want. But our expectations often guide our perception of something. Now, there are a couple of layers to this. The first comes up a lot with historical pieces. We often have a, a skewed perspective on history, or, or we don't really understand the timelines of people and nations versus technology or other cultural phenomenon. I mean, did you know that Cleopatra lived closer in time to the construction of the first pizza hut than the founding of the Great Pyramid of Giza? Yeah, true story. Look it up. But it's hard to wrap my brain around that. So sometimes we'll see things in a show that have been meticulously researched for accuracy, and yet, because they don't match my expectations, well, I think they must be wrong. Let me describe a popular kind of cigarette lighter. It had a little glass sphere that held a dilute uh, sulfuric acid. Uh, the acid would drip down onto a zinc plate, and those two would react together to create hydrogen gas. Then when a small valve was open, the hydrogen gas would jet out onto a platinum sponge. And that sponge catalyzes the reaction with the oxygen in the air, which heats the sponge, which in turn ignites the hydrogen and produces a gentle flame. I mean, no flint, no spark, just, you know, better living through chemistry. And do you know when this was invented? 1823. And it was in mass production until about 1880. Yeah. Now, the formal name of this gizmo is Doberreiner's Lamp. But it was commonly called, you ready, a tinderbox. Yeah, that means if you're doing, I don't know, an Ibsen play, and someone calls for a tinderbox, this lighter is probably what they mean, not some little box with char cloth and a flint and steel or something primitive. The point is, audience expectations are a funny thing, and we have to walk a line between education and entertainment. So when a thing, like, like sword fighting, is actually quite different than what the audience has come to expect, which way do you go? Well, there's no single answer here. Sometimes it's fine to play to cultural expectations. I mean, I don't watch a John Woo film and think, why, yes, that's exactly the way a real gun battle plays out. I mean, is the violence in his films inaccurate, over-the-top, and completely unrealistic? Of course. Is it fun to watch? Yeah. 
I mean, I don't expect every show to be completely historically accurate or even realistic. Every year, I help coordinate the fights uh, for an outdoor pirate festival, whose main historical source, as far as I can tell, is the Pirates of the Caribbean movies. Now, do I worry about staying within Royal Navy Cutlass doctrine? Not a lot, no. I mean, those fights are all about entertainment. People come in expecting big, broad, swashbuckling fights, and I cater to their expectations. But when a production is otherwise historically accurate, neither do I throw up my hands and say, well, the audience expects a standard Hollywood swash, so if that's what they want... Well, see, people may expect a certain thing because they don't know there's anything else. And as Steve Jobs uh, famously said in a Business Week interview, a lot of times... People don't know what they want until you show it to them. So design historical fights in historical show, but design good ones, fascinating ones, ones that are vicious and compelling and draw out the characters and show them desperately trying to get what they need. Design the kind of fights where it looks like the actors are really trying to hit each other or or are hitting each other because the audience can't see how you've hidden the safeties. Don't use the regular tricks and tropes. Show them something better. Show them how dramatic historical fighting can be. Smash their expectations. Now, there's a lot more than just historical accuracy to talk about in the realism versus drama debate. And in an upcoming episode, I'm going to be talking about adding planned chaos into your fights. (laughs) How's that for an oxymoron? And how planned chaos can increase both the drama and the realism of a scene, but for now, I'll start to wind this episode down. The takeaway for today is that dramatic fights and realistic or historically accurate fights are not mutually exclusive. It's not a zero-sum game. It's rather a spectrum of styles, and the violence designer needs to understand where a production falls on that spectrum and then choreograph accordingly. Don't just plug-and-play what you've always done. Design the violence. Well, if you've liked this episode, you can find all of them at the website at violencedesignlab.com forward slash podcast. You can also support the lab uh, by going to iTunes and leaving me a review or going to Patreon at patreon.com slash violencedesignlab. You can find me on Facebook at uh, facebook.com slash violencelab. And of course, if you have something to tell me directly, like a compliment, constructive criticism, question, topic suggestion, you can always email me at uh, violencedesignlab at gmail.com. So once again, thanks for joining me, and I look forward to talking with you next week. Until then, David, out. Thanks for listening to the Violence Design Lab podcast. For more tips, tutorials, and downloadable resources, visit us at violencedesignlab.com. 